What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Over Six Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Zach the Bandit Burke, and with me, as always, is Cam the Turf King Charlton. Cam, how you doing? Not too bad. It is stupid hot outside. Second straight day of over 40 degree heat. I'm just trying to hide away from it now. I didn't want to be outside anymore. It's way too hot to do anything outside. I was supposed to play golf at 2.30. Not happening. 43 degrees? No thanks. How are you doing, Burke? Not too bad. Not too bad. It is a little bit uh, steamy today, for sure. Yesterday as uh, as well. But hey, I mean, when it's minus 30 in December or January or whenever, and we're wishing for hot golfing weather, isn't this what you're asking for? No. <laughs> I'm never asking for over 40 degree heat in southern Ontario. Ever. At least you can work on the tan. I mean, okay, were you wearing pants at work today? Like, were you on a job that you had, like, was your job pants worthy today? I always wear pants as a manager on the golf course. It's just part of the job. Okay, so that's the, okay, so that's part of it, right? The pants is no good. I know that experience when I worked at the parks department back in the day. I had to wear pants too. It was kind of crappy. Uh, how's your course holding up? You were kind of mentioning you're, on, you're short on water supply here. So, like, are we talking... Uh, you know, at like Masters where you're stripping all the fairways and greens in the fall or what? I mean, we won't have that luxury. We won't have the luxury of bringing in water either this year. It just costs too much money. But, yeah, we're starting to struggle. The roughs are unirrigated, so they are dead. The fescue is just about dead. So you'll get nice lies in the fescue. Shouldn't lose as many balls. Fairways greens are holding up great. The tees are starting to go in areas. Just the amount of wind this past week, uh, tees don't get irrigated extremely well. So we're going to have to have some people out hand-watering tees this coming week. And then we're going to start leaning off the water soon. At the current pace, August, first week, second week of August, we will run out of water. So we're going to have to start holding off. The driving range is going to be dead in a hurry. Uh, then we'll probably tease next and then fairways. But uh, we'll hold off the greens for the year, but starting to get scary. We need some rain in southern Ontario. How do you um, how do you bring those back? Like, let's just say you ran out of water in August and it's hot in August. It's hot in September. Like, what does it look like in the spring? It's a good question. I mean, you hope for luck. You'll overseed, you'll slit seed. You'll do a few things you can to try and bring it back, but really you're just hoping the water and the winter will do it and see what you, how much work you have to do in the spring. Dude, that would be that would be tough. I'm not going to lie. I mean, yeah. I mean, if, the only thing that I would say is, like, if it's too expensive to bring in water, man, I can't imagine how expensive it would be to have to resod greens and teas and whatever. Uh, by the way, your comment about fescue being easier is bullshit. Because we were there last week and it was terrible. So, I mean, that's my own fault because I should probably keep it in play. I know that's probably where you're going. So, I'll just get it out of the way and say it myself. Um, but Yeah, that's exactly where I'm going with that. Well, hey, you know what? It's not my fault. There's fescue everywhere. I mean, the good news is is that my driver's at like 50% right now. So, that's good. Because before it was 0%. I mean, I think 50%. If you're hitting 50% of fairways, I think that's better than me. You? What do you mean? Okay, first of all, I don't necessarily hit the fairway. I just don't slice it 50 yards out of bounds. That's what I'm calling a good drive. If it goes straight, mm. even if it's in the rough or like wherever, that's fine. As long as it's good contact, I don't really care where it ends up. Anything's better than a 50-yard slice to the right. Yeah, I guess that is a very true. Anyway, all right, so a little bit of housekeeping stuff. Uh, it's summertime. I got a baby on the way and cam has been busy with work and busy with golf so we're getting out as many pods as we can it's the first one that we've done in three weeks uh yeah so if you want to complain about us not doing it sorry the millions of dollars that we don't make don't make it worth it but 
no, it's all good. We're getting it what we can. Uh, as soon as football season comes back and you're not waking up at two 30 in the morning and everything, we're, uh, generally back in business for sure. But a couple of weeks off, we had a lot of, you know, lots of stuff kind of happen. Uh, so that gets us into some, uh, interesting conversations. So starting off with, I, I mean, I feel like, so first up is going to be golf. I mean, this has really been one of the bigger topics in the sports world, I would say. I mean, yeah, sure. You have the, you know, you have the NBA, you have the, the NHL playoffs, all that kind of stuff going on, but really there's been a lot going on with, uh, with live golf, the Saudi tour and, uh, and with the PGA, um, I kind of want to start, we're going to kind of go back and forth here. I, I'd like to start off with, with the, the news that Abraham answer and Brooks Kapka went to live. So Brooks Kapka is not playing on the PGA anymore. He's going to play live golf. The reason I'm bringing this up first, and we'll talk about it a little bit more later, but the reason I bring this up first is because prior to the U S open reporters and everybody are asking about, Hey, like, what do you think about live? Like, what's your number? You know, like blah, blah, blah. And his answer was basically hot and bothered about how you're casting a black shadow over the U S open and he's not going to speculate. And then the tournament ends. And like two days later, he's announcing he's on the live tour. Like, man, couldn't you just been honest and just been a man and tell everybody like, what, like, what are we doing here? Brooks Kepler was coming to live. You knew the moment that his brother signed up. His brother is not a good professional golfer. If you thought that Chase Kepka got a deal without something to do with Brooks coming to live, you're, stupid really like as soon as we saw chase kepka as a part of live you knew brooks was coming it just mattered when uh skipping the first event in london doing the second one in portland makes sense so brooks was about the least shocking news i've heard so i just don't like he's like like just at least be honest with people i don't like i don't know why you thought that was gonna change anything that's brooks kepka though he thinks he's too cool for the game of golf he always has he always will pretends he doesn't care but then he does grind he does practice he just he thinks he's a basketball player stuff and he thinks he's too cool for golf. That's always been the way Brooks Kepka has been. And I mean, he's got it done in the majors. I mean, you look at his wife, I mean, he's living a pretty good life. So maybe he is too good for golf, but uh, yeah, this was the least shocking news. Abe answer a little more shocking to me, a little bit like younger, a little bit guy who's good spot on the PGA tour. This takes him out of the president's cup, which he thought would be important for him. Helps out the Canadians on the president's cup. Cause he was one of the top 12. Uh, that one's a little more shocking to me. Again, this is a lot of guys outside the top 15 who are kind of edge of their prime. Brooks Koepka suffered through too many injuries. So other than Abe Answer and Taylor Gooch, this is nobody's really shocking me so far. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right, is, is that, I mean, I saw this tweet the other day talking about how, like, if you look at all the live golfers, it's guys who can't get it done, guys who are past their prime, and basically nobody's now I got to be careful when I say nobody's because one of these guys might, um, you know, one of these guys might prove me wrong. Um, but yeah, I mean, Hey, the other tweet that I saw was, you know, none of the top 15 golfers in the world went and I'm like, man, well, it's a good thing because that would be catastrophic for the PGA tour. If you start losing your really marquee guys. And I thought maybe Kepka would have a nice week at the U S open, but turns out he did not, and Matt Fitzpatrick pulled it out with a minus six total. Man, did that course ever look tough to play? Oh, the country club is just unbelievable. It's actually quite a bit short. It's a short course for the U.S. Open. U.S. Open always goes super long, super tough. And the country club was tough, but it was tight. And you only had guys nine guys finish under par, which is perfect for a U.S. Open. That's what they want. 
They want par to be really the goal and what's hard. But what a tournament, too. And this is, again, back-to-back weeks for the PGA Tour. We didn't get a touch on the Canadian Open. What a perfect week for the PGA Tour going against head, head-to-head against Liv. Rory McIlroy winning it up here in Canada. You had JT there. It was absolutely perfect. Couldn't have been better for the PGA Tour. Two of their showcase guys going at it. And, again, now we go to the next week, this U.S. Open at the Country Club, one of the original five courses of the USGA. And we got Matty Fitz going head-to-head with Willie Zalatoris. Uh, Scotty Scheffler was up there. We had Rory at times. Like, again, these are the top guys on the PGA Tour, and they were all there. And the live guys weren't there. And you saw it. You saw Phil, what, 17 over or something? Stupid. I don't remember the exact number. Not even a chance. Uh, DJ actually looked okay at times, but nobody else was really in contention at all. Uh, this golf course, this was just the perfect weekend. Saturday got really tough when the wind got up. Sunday, you saw guys making birdies when they needed to. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable golf course. Unbelievable setup. Matty Fitz wins it. Uh, this guy's chipping cross-handed and putting with the flag stick in. Super interesting, but you got to love it. Matty Fitz won the U.S. Am there, and now he's won the U.S. Open there. Second person ever to do it on the same course. So pretty impressive by Matty Fitz. I mean, his bunker shot on 18 was second to none, man. I mean, if you look at the broadcast, they thought that it was going to be tough to put it anywhere within 10 to 15 feet. Now, I would argue that if you're a professional golfer, you need to be able to make that shot. Um I, I don't know what the, the lie was like. It's tough. Like, I, it was tough to tell from the camera view. Not, the first original lie, you saw the caddy kind of using his club to see where that island in the bunker was. Once that island wasn't in the way, that's a really easy shot. He's 158 out, out of a fairway bunker. That's not a hard shot. That's, even for me, an 8-iron out of a fairway bunker, that's easy. I feel like I can hit that just as good as from the fairway. So at first when the ball ended up there, you thought it was dead, but it was away from the island, away from the face. He's probably hitting an eight or nine, probably nine iron he's probably hitting from there. So really, that's not that hard of a shot. You should be able to hit that over the pin, no problem. You'll get a ton of spin because it's from the bunker. I don't understand why the broadcast said it was so hard. It was still an incredible shot in the moment. Like you can't hit a fairway bunker shot. If you get it too heavy or too thin, you're in a lot of trouble, but Overall, it's not as hard of a shot as the broadcast made it be. It's st- still incredible execution. And then Willie Zalatoris there just missing that putt. Everyone, like, as soon as he was off the club face, I thought it was in. Yeah, I mean, but are we shocked? He's, like, the worst on tour at putting. I mean, how many, this guy would have three, what was the tweet I said? This guy would have three majors if he, because what is he? He's lost three majors by four strokes total. So you take a stroke or two off putting and you're good to go. Here's the craziest thing about Willie Zalatoris. Within, I think it's eight feet, he's like 140th on tour. Over 15 feet, I think, he's third. So he's actually, and you just watch his stroke. His leg putt stroke in like from 15 feet is unbelievable. Like it's great tempo, great motion and everything. As soon as he gets within 10 feet, he does like this pause, move outside, back inside, come online, and it's ugly and he looks nervous. But he's actually great from where that putt was on 18. He's one of the best on tour from there. But overall, his putting's not good because he misses so many of those short ones. But that last putt on that hole, I mean, those are the ones that he was making all day. Well, that's a good point. I mean, the point I think I'm making with the putting, though, is, is that he, did, he, you know, if he makes a couple of smaller ones early, and I didn't watch the full round, so I don't know if he had that. But I'm sure during this tournament, he probably had something inside eight feet, a couple inside eight feet that you would say, you know, you got to have those and he didn't have, right? Being 140th in the world, out of, I mean, which is still not bad. Like, come on. 140th on yeah, two. Like, that's not. Yeah, you just got to start to wonder about Willie Zalatoris a bit again. Like, when did these, this one seemed like the most heartbreaker. Like, 
the PGA there, he did so well in the playoff against Justin Thomas. And look, he looked good. JT just took his game to another level. Matty Fitz never took his game to another level here. He was just consistent. Zalatoris had a couple chances and he couldn't get it done. And like he said, this was the most heartbreaking one. And it's whether he can bounce back off this, keep doing what he's doing. He's one of the best ball strikers on tour. Uh, maybe second to Colin Morikawa. Maybe better overall because Morikawa can't play in wind. Uh, he's, you think he's going to get it done, but again, like he's still young for a PGA Tour guy, but you can't keep finishing second. We saw it from a guy like Ricky Fowler who finished second in three of the four majors the one year. I think top five in all four. Now we're C, so you can't keep doing this. Uh, I'm pulling for the guy. I like him. He seems like a likable guy, but uh, I love Matty Fitz. He's a great guy. Uh, he's got to be the first major winner with braces, I think. What do you think? I, I did notice that. I was like, man, only the bottom teeth, though, eh? Not the top, just the bottom teeth. No, he has the Invisalign on Oh, does he? Well. Okay. Well, that's probably because yeah. he knows that when he's talking and smiling for the camera, he doesn't want to have the, the brace face going on. But how old is Fitzpatrick? I mean, anyway? you got to – I actually don't know his exact age. I want to say mid-20s. Uh, but you just got to feel for the guy. I mean, he's English, so at least he's using his money to help fix his uh... – <laughs> problem with his teeth i mean you i mean not to be stereotypical but the english don't have the best. he's 27 he's two years older than scheffler that's crazy scheffler's still 40 i don't care what yeah, anybody says. 25 going on 40 have you ever seen scotty scheffler and buzz lightyear in the same room no i'm pretty sure that's who they model the lightyear movie off though gotta be it has to be they look like the same person um good showing by the canadians um adam haddow and T7, minus one. That's not a bad score, honestly, for that course. No, that's great for Adam Hadwin, too, because this puts him into the U.S. Open next year automatically, finishing in the top ten so he doesn't have to qualify next year. Huge for him, highest major finish for him. Moves him into 12th on the President's Cup standings as well, which is the automatic berth into the President's Cup as a Canadian. So now we got three there. He'll actually move up to 11th because as soon as Abe Answer tees it up this week for the live, he pulls out of the President's Cup. So we'll have Mac Hughes, Corey Connors, and Adam Hadwin possibly on the President's Cup team, which will be huge. And it was disappointing for Corey Connors. Um, I mean, he didn't make the cut. He just couldn't seem to get it going. Um, one of my picks, and unfortunately, just for, for golf pools, and you won that golf pool. You That was the biggest comeback ever. Uh, but, man, like I just, it, it was just tough out there for him. There's a lot of guys who were really showing fr- some frustration on their course. I mean, Rory won the week before and was having a great time, and then – I think it was Saturday. He was not. He was not feeling it. JT was pretty pissed off a bunch. Uh, I mean, there was probably more broken clubs at this golf tournament or snap clubs by guys intentionally than there has been all year. Like, oh man, I, I and I get it because I like even amateur wise. Like when we play at courses that I get punished for hitting good shots or what I think are good shots. You know, good contact, good placement. Um, you know, like the other day, you know, 158 out onto a turtleback that slopes down towards a hazard. You hit it to the middle of the green. The greens are hard. I haven't played there in a while. Greens are hard. Rolls off in the hazard. You're like, man, I just striped a shot landed in the middle of the green, and I, and it, you know, went OB. And I can only imagine how that would feel amplified by the fact that you're competing for a major and you're competing for, you know, hundreds, thousands, millions of dollars. Yeah, I don't think they were getting penalized the same way that some guys complain for good shots here. The course was set up great. This was no Shinnecock or Chambers Bay where the course was set up horribly and everyone was going to struggle horribly. As you saw, the winning score was still six under. Like, if you hit good shots, put the ball in the right spot, you could score. You could not miss fairways here. You could not miss greens substantially or you were in a ton of trouble. And that's what guys did. And they got frustrated because it was more of a graduated rough, graduated fescue, graduated areas. So if you miss three feet, not that big of a deal. If you miss 10 feet off the fairway, you're in a lot of trouble. 
and that's the better way of doing it. It works all the way up the hole. So, I mean, again, this was, I think, a great setup by the U.S. Open. U.S. Open always wants to make par tough to get. And that's, they did it perfectly here. They never <laughs> lost control of the course. They made it tough on the guys, and it showed. It was a great product, great tournament. Uh, came down to the wire just as he wanted. He had the world number one, Scotty Scheffler there. And then he had Zalatoris, who's been there for like two years on the majors now. He's, what, finished seven of his ten majors in the top ten. He's unbelievable. And then Matty Fitz getting it done where he got it done as a U.S. Am. Staying with the same people he stayed with as an amateur. Just an unbelievable story, cool story to get it done. And a uh, ton of fun. It was a great tournament. And I don't think the U.S. Open could have gone much better for the golf course. Big shout out to the superintendent there. They're finally giving out an award to the superintendents who host the U.S. Open. Uh, I didn't know they hadn't done that before, but that's huge. I mean, it's a big part of every tournament. I know I'm biased for that, but it takes a lot of work setting up a golf course for the U.S. Open. So nice to see that the superintendent there and the superintendent going forward for the U.S. Open is going to get a shout out. No, that's that's sweet. Shout out to all the superintendents, man. Thankless job for the most part. Except for the guy who put pins at uh, Glen Cairn last week. That guy's an asshole. Um, by the way, going back to Liv, talking about, do you know where, what, where uh, Kepka finished on the field? I do not. 55th at plus 12. Guess who was right behind him at T56? I do not know. Bryson DeChambeau at plus 13. And Dustin Johnson was T24 at plus 4. Not so going back, yeah. Not a good showing by the live guys. I just love that Kepka and DeChambeau were one stroke off each other, fifty fifth and T fifty six. So on the plus side, in a fifty four uh, person tournament, they can't finish that low. That's true. Also, with how easy they set up the golf course, they probably won't shoot plus thirteen. No, and uh, that's it'll be it'll be interesting. Nice to see the PGA Tour stepping up today. I don't know if you saw this from Jay Monahan yet. Uh, the eight big events for the PGA Tour, the API, the Genesis, I uh, can't remember all of them, Bay Hill, everything BMW. like that. All those tournaments have, have been bumped up huge for uh, prize money. They've been basically doubled from overall. Uh, some of them moved from like 14 to $20 million, but this is huge. This will be big for the guys. These are the marquee events. Uh, so they're going to spread that money around even more to hopefully keep the guys there. And I think it's better. Again, like I get why guys are leaving for money and I'm never going to judge you for your personal choice, but to me, I'm on Rory JT's side here. There's something about winning a tournament that has history. Getting a tournament that has Arnold Palmer's name on it, Tiger Woods on it, doing all that stuff. Like, get Rory winning the Canadian Open for the second time in a row with the history of one of the oldest golf tournaments in North America. Like, there's something else to that. Do you really care who wins this live event in Portland? Is there any history to that? Is there anything else? No. So, that's my opinion. So, nice to see they're going to try and counteract this a little bit right now. We'll see how it holds up. But uh, I'm hoping for the PGA Tour. I mean, I don't think they really had a choice, to be honest. I mean, I think that they weren't too concerned when it was just um, like when it was just like Dustin Johnson and and Phil. They're like, ah, whatever. They're not too worried. And then they lose Bryson and then they lose Brooks. And I mean, yeah, those are kind of villains on tour. But I think that they started to see a trend where they're like, well, you're, or like when you lose Patrick Ant- Reed, pa- well, Patrick Reed, they don't care about. They like he's gone saves a lot of time on the golf course, but like guys like answer and Taylor Gooch, like there's some other guys who had some really good potential on tour who they're like, man, we just don't want to lose the young guys too. Right. Like, yeah, I mean, sure. The old guys, whatever, like it's great if they're past their prime or we don't need them. And obviously the guys who are, you know, the serious top 15, top 20 in the world, they're not going anywhere. Right. Cause that a lot of those guys were, you know, as like Justin Thomas or like Rory, like they are ingrained and, and want that competition level. But, um, 
you know, for the PGA, I think for sure you had, you had to counteract something. And I like that they chose eight events. Like, is that not the same amount of events that lifts doing on a yearly basis is eight this year? Yeah. You don't it's think that that, you don't think that was pointed for sure. It was a hundred percent. That's the reason they did. And they could say, well, these are our biggest events. They could have done 10. They could have done whatever they could have, you know, spread the money increases that they did on those purses around more tournaments, but they didn't. They 100% did eight tournaments because that's exactly how many live is. And that is a subliminal message to them basically saying, hey, you're not pushing us around. We're still the, we're still the top dog here. We're not afraid to pay our players. Um, I mean, Monaghan is making like five and a half million a year. That is not the worst gig ever, eh? Being the commissioner of the PGA, yeah. making five and a half mil. And you probably get to play some nice golf courses too. Right, he'll get to play any golf course he wants basically in North America, so. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens. Again, I'm 100% on the PGA side, hoping it wins out. Uh, I understand why some of these guys are going. I don't understand why some of the other guys are going, but I'm hoping for the PGA. I like the history in sports. Again, I mean, you look at some of the teams I cheer for in other sports. I love the history. I love the halves because of the history that goes around the sports. So uh, PGA Tour, everything in the history. The RNA did announce that they will allow the live players to play in the Open here, so that's important to know as well. Uh, so we'll see how they can do at St. Andrews this year. Uh, so that's exciting too. One more major to go this year at St. Andrews. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to what's going to come of that as well. And you hear the roar because I don't think that anybody's going to give two shits about the live guys. When there's a tiger stalking the greens and the yeah. fairways, I, like, no, I guarantee you that you probably won't even see the live guys on camera. Yeah, huge, huge. Good choice by Tiger not to play the country club after watching that course, though. He would have died out there with his leg. Huge news on Twitter the other day. He was taking a picture with a fan. No leg sleeve. So Tiger must be feeling a little better. St. Andrews is super flat. The weather can always be in question. But it's a pretty easy walk overall compared to especially watching the country club here. So uh, Tiger will be at St. Andrews. There's no doubt in my mind he's going to be there. And he's dominated that course in the past. So, again, I will never count Tiger out. I might not bet on him, but I will be the first one afterwards saying, yep, should have. I mean, maybe you should bet on him then. Maybe just a tenner. I mean, he's probably going to go off at like 55 to 1 or something. It's one of those things, like, I don't know if I can actually fully bet Rory to win another major, but I will be the first one to say, yep, I should have bet it afterwards. So I'm excited to see Tiger St. Andrews. I know so many people bitch that he's going to take over all – the broadcast and everything, but it's Tiger Woods. It's St. Andrews. He's dominated there in the past. And again, as every player on tour tell you, Tiger is the needle. He doesn't move the needle. He is the needle. That's the way golf should be. Guys are saying, if anyone deserves all the pit money, it's Tiger Woods. So it's Tiger. I mean, you even heard it. Like Pat Perez, I saw him live a few weeks ago. He was talking about it. He's like, yeah, the pip's a joke because Tiger Woods should get all of it. Pat Perez has now gone to live. So he wants the money. He wants stuff like that, but he still has the respect for Tiger Woods and everything he brings. So Tiger will be the needle at St. Andrews. He will be playing. I will be shocked if he's not. So exciting thing to come in a couple weeks now. I think that's why Monaghan is mentioned in basically every single letter that he sent to the PGA players. Tiger has been mentioned like guys like Arnold, Jack, Tiger. And I always, and, and everybody knows and talks about how he's done so much for the game, but it's almost to me like he throws it in there because if there's ever a guy who's like thinking about not going, it's like, do you really want Tiger Woods to be disappointed in you and you never get to play against Tiger Woods again or play with Tiger Woods again? You know what I mean? Like I, that's gotta be part of it. I mean, besides the fact that he's been so influential in what he does, 
I just, I wonder if for some of the younger members, it just reminds you like, Hey, you're playing on a tour tour with Tiger Woods here. Like what can the Saudi tour do? What are you going to play with Phil? Okay. That's cool. It's not Tiger Woods. And this guy's still playing on the tour. Like he's, he's, I mean, I get mentioning Arnie and I get mentioning Jack Tiger's still playing on the fucking tour. And he's getting that respect. Three years, 2019. He won the masters. Yeah. Like we don't forget about that, but you think about it compared to any other sport. Like, you think about it, say the KHL is going to start offering guys $50 million, and especially everything going on in Russia. If they're just going to start blowing people out of the park with money, do you really care about winning the Garrett or what is it, the Garrigan Cup? No. Or do you want to win the Stanley Cup? Yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's an easy arguably, answer. Argu- yeah, the Stanley Cup's arguably the best trophy in sports. I will argue it's the best trophy in sports. To argue the playoffs, the sport, whatever, it is the greatest trophy in sports, in my opinion. There's something about winning the Stanley Cup for less money than there is like you can't take that history away so that's something that jay monahan's using for golf is the history around the sport it is tougher when the majors aren't controlled by him but as you're seeing it's working with some of the guys you see guys like rory win the canadian open you see him and jt embrace afterwards saying let's do this again every week like these are the things that matter to some guys and if they can make enough money on the pga tour why not but uh i'm not going to get overly judging for people leaving for a ton of money but again i hope the pga tour wins out i think there's more history i think there's way better things in the sport, the golf courses they're using, everything. So that's my opinion. Well, I mean, you need to watch our golf tournaments because that's really the the marquee event, the Hackers Inter- the Hackers Invitational. Talking to two former champs right here. We got trophies. <laughs> exactly. Um, let's talk about the NBA, the Golden State Warriors. Take care of the Boston Celtics. And, of course, Stephen A. Smith was the first one tweeting his receipts from back in October. I mean, I, I, we're going to talk about the series in a sec. I just wanted to talk about this. Because Stephen A., man, this guy throws out so many takes that it's impossible for him not to have receipts on a take. Like, I guarantee you that if the Celtics won, he had a tweet queued up of him saying the Celtics were going to win it all in, like, November. But he used the one from, from Golden State winning uh, in October. Um, I mean, I think... Everybody's talking about Steph in this series, and I think rightfully so. Um, I mean, he, he was unbelievable and took games over and just did what Steph does. The MVP. Yeah. The finals MVP. No doubt. And rightfully so. Rightfully so. But Wiggins, the Canadian boy, I mean, man, he had himself a really, really good playoffs, a really good finals, was excellent defensively. Um, Boston just did not show their depth in my opinion, and they just, they kind of ran out, you know, Tatum and Jalen Brown, and they, they they were just getting shut down, and they didn't really have an answer. Like, Marcus Smart, like, that's just not going to work. Like, they just didn't have the same answers as as Golden State did. And, man, when, when Golden State was a game four they won, and Steph was 0 for 9 from 3, or 2 for 9 for 3 or something, and they and, and Boston lost, you knew the series is over at that point. Because if like if Steph's gonna go basically over, yeah, and you lose, he's not gonna do that again. I just it just doesn't happen. No. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm gonna be biased on multiple occasions. I don't like any Boston sports franchise. That's fair. Doesn't matter what sport it That's is. That's fair. I don't like them, and I'm not even a Leafs fan. And I still, I mean, I'm a Haas fan, so the Bruins hates the same. I don't like the Red Sox. I don't like the Celtics. Nobody likes the Patriots. So I'm not a big Boston fan overall, so I wanted to see Steph win. I love Steph as a person. As I mean, he loves the game of golf, everything he does with Under Armour for that, everything he does off the court. I love Steph, so that was cheering. There's a few things I have an issue here. One, Tatum. 
so I understand Tatum's big influence in the game was Kobe Bryant and a ton of respect to Kobe Bryant, like rest in peace. Like he was unbelievable. One of the greatest scorers I will ever see in the history of basketball. But the Boston LA rivalry is huge. I don't understand why Tatum after every press conference has to talk about Kobe Bryant, his phone calls for it. He's wearing a purple and gold armband in the playoffs. Like this isn't what it's about anymore. Uh, it just comes off really weird in my opinion. I don't really understand Tatum or really like him that much. I mean, again, he's a Celtic, so I don't understand any of them. But just so many things rub me the wrong way about the Celtics, so I love to see them lose. Uh, and again, as you mentioned, Andrew Wiggins. I watched this guy when he was on TSN in high school basketball. This was supposed to be the big thing in Canadian basketball. He's probably like fourth or fifth on the charts now. You got other guys, Jamal Murray, uh, Gildress Alexander. So I don't know where Wiggins fits, but man, seeing him do this, seeing him step up in the big moments – be a huge core piece of this Golden State Warriors team winning it all. It's just huge to see. So for me, it was an easy cheering for the Golden State Warriors. Steph finally getting his MVP finals, showing that it wasn't Durant. And I think them just being healthy. I mean, everything with Draymond Green maybe wasn't the best. Uh, but so much happened in the season. Touching back on Stephen A. Smith, I just ignore all his takes because he makes 30,000 takes. If I made 30,000 takes, I will always be right because uh, I'll just contradict myself every time. Uh, the only other funny one I think is I haven't seen it yet or a response to it yet, but Charles Barkley is supposed to eat horseshit. Oh, I did see before that. The series he said, before the series, he said the Golden State has no chance, and if Golden State wins, he will eat a bowl of horseshit. So I haven't seen a reply to that yet. Uh, so I'm still waiting for from that from Charles Barkley. But, I mean, after watching this, this is a dynasty in basketball. They've won four championships now with that core group of guys for the most part, Clay, Steph. You've had a bunch of different guys step in, Andre Iguodala. Now you had Wiggins. You had Durant. Uh, this is the dynasty. Same way that we're talking in NHL about Tampa Bay. Like, this is unbelievable. And I will cheer for Steph every day of the week. I think he's – I mean, we had a huge argument in our chat. I think he's changed the game more than LeBron. LeBron's a way better player overall. He's going to be higher on the greatest of all time. But Steph Curry has changed the game more than any player I've seen in my lifetime. The way that the three-point game has changed because of Steph. And I will cheer for him. I love him as a – person love watching him play basketball so uh it was nice to see the Warriors win yeah I well which I never thought we'd say because they won so many but you're right I'm way rather than win than than Celtics um I would I, I would agree with with that I think Steph has definitely changed it more I mean we're not talking about GOAT status I mean this has been a hot topic for in, in our group chat always it's not just one week or two weeks it's all of time um but he just, I mean, Steph just, Steph and Clay, I mean, I'll give some credit to Clay Thompson too. I mean, the Splash Brothers originally, like those guys, the way that they just shot the three ball in from all places, um, for sure changed it because you weren't able to defend it. And then, you know, you had to the rap, and now the Raptors did it well. And they, you know, they were also going to say, dealing with injuries. I get it. They had Durant, they had Steph, or sorry, Clay, then whatever. Um, but the, the range they can shoot at for sure has changed how you play defense, right? And I mean, LeBron was just so dominant. He just did his thing, man. You could, you just couldn't stop him. And I think that's a lot different than, than changing the game. Um, right. I mean, you could say, you could, I guess you could argue, yeah, well, you had to play different defense for LeBron too, because he was so dominant. No, like you just had to run your standard double team or put a guy on, I'm going to go one-on-one. But I mean, Steph, how do you defend that? Because he can, he can shoot it from 40 feet, 45 feet, or he can pull up go around you, chuck it to Draymond under the basket easily. Like I, It's just a lot harder to defend what Steph brought to the table. And now I'd argue you look around the league, and if you don't have a consistent three-ball shooter, then you're going to lose. Like That's just the reality. 
Yeah, like LeBron's not that much different than guys we've seen in the past. Like even a Jordan, like the games are similar. They can kind of do it all. LeBron was actually a horrible shooter when he first came into the league. But the way Steph has got guys to change completely, like you look at a guy like Trey Young, he's basically just followed this Steph model and he's changed the game. You see the teams changing the game, the importance on the three ball. This is all coming from Steph, where guys are shooting from, taking more threes, even though originally people were thinking it wasn't take the easy two. Like he's just changed the game. Analytics have changed the game. But that's a lot to do with Steph Curry. And yeah, I mean, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens next year. The one thing I don't like is, I mean, I love how they release the odds like the day after. And obviously the Warriors are favorited to win again. I find it so funny. Like, I mean, I feel like they could probably wait a little while. If you're putting bets on futures for uh, championships like the day after, you're a full degenerate. Because so much changes in the offseason, especially in the NBA, man. I mean, it's it's one of the most volatile in terms of rosters, to be sure. Um, the Raps were like midway down the list, like 50 to 1 to win. They don't really have a chance next year to, to do anything. Boston might be able to take a step. They just have to – I mean, Boston just ran out of – they had depth issues. That's the biggest problem that they had. So you shut down their best guys, and, and, they, and the rest of them couldn't get it done. Um I mean, the interesting thing is about this Golden State Warriors team is if we're talking betting odds, they were the longest betting odds before a season to win a championship, if you can follow that. So I can't remember what their odds were before the season, but it's the longest betting odds to win a championship in any professional sport since betting odds really became a thing. So Woo. nobody really expected them to win a championship this year, and they did it. So, I mean, hopefully you're a Warriors fan and put a little money on that. So we'll see if any other team can take a big step like they did. Is it a big step when it's the Golden State Warriors and they have that core? Not really. So I don't know if there's another team that compares, but a little interesting tidbit. It is. Um, let's get into the NHL. And we've got the uh, Colorado Avalanche, Tampa Bay Lightning, Tampa in the finals again. Um, and we haven't talked since they made it, but that's where we're at. So, um, yeah, so we're sitting at 2-1 in the series. Game four goes tonight. Uh, you know, the abs took game one, thumped the lightning in game two, and then the lightning thumped the abs in game, in game three. I don't, I mean, I don't, the like scoreboard was seven to two, six, two, six, two, no empty netters. So, I mean, yeah, but it wasn't, it was a way closer game than like the seven, nothing game was an absolute thumping by Colorado. The 6-2 game, like, Colorado had more chances and more shots than Tampa. Darcy Kemper played horrible. It was still, like, Tampa deserved to win, but it was like a 4-2 game, not a 6-2 game. It was a lot closer than the score finished. It wasn't a thumping. Tampa did what they needed to, but it wasn't a thumping. I mean, they also got goal. The one thing that I will say is they did get goals from, like, very unsuspect. Like, Pat Maroon scored a goal. It was actually not bad. Like, it was actually a nice goal, but, like, he shouldn't be scoring on you. No offense, like some of the like the other goals that I that I see were just like tap-ins that rolled through Kemper. Like it was tough. Um, my comments, like I mean, and we and we went on. We did, we couldn't record, but we did go and give our predictions. Both of us had Avs and six. I still think Avs and six is is going to happen. I feel pretty good about it. Um, thing about when you're saying Avs and six, that means the Lightning got to win two games. So they already got one, so that's good. Uh, I'd like to see the Avs win tonight and go up 3-1. I think that'd be great. And then, uh, I mean, but you, they might not. Who knows? We'll see. Um, I did hear that they wanted to win at home. So that's kind of, I mean, if you win tonight and and, uh, and next game, there you go. That's what, you, that's what you've got. 
Uh, but if they want to win at home, it's not looking good for Lightning in, or sorry, uh, Avs in six. That's the only problem. Have to, if they're winning in six, they're winning on the road. Um, biggest thing that I've noticed in this series thus far is uh, number one, officiating is going back to something I don't like to see. Last game, especially, I saw some not good calls. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but I was like, man, how are we calling this? Like regular season, I think it's pretty sus, but now we're calling it in the Stanley Cup final. Like, what are we doing here? That's number one. Um, so let's start there. What are your comments on the officiating? Because I think it's been, I don't, I don't know what they're. Do they have to have a directive to call these calls? They have to, because there's no way that they're that bad. Yeah, again, like completely unbiased. I'd love to see Colorado win, but I'm biased. I don't think it's made a difference either way and cost a team a game or anything. But it has not been good again. Like, there's so many penalties where I'm in the group chat. I'm like, really? That's a penalty in the Stanley Cup Finals? Like, what is this? Why was that a penalty in the Stanley Cup Finals? Doesn't make sense to me. There's a lot of people arguing the linesman should have noticed that was clearly offside. You know what? That was way too close. It took, like, a five-minute delay last game because it was way closer than you think. The one angle made it look way offside, but that's an inconclusive angle. Again, this is still where the linesman, with the challenge now, if it's that close, you let it play out. And then see what the challenge goes. Because if you blow that down and that's onside and they end up scoring, like, you'd way rather have that you do what you did there and have it play out that way. So the coach's challenge allows you to be a little more – it gives you a little more room to go that way. So I actually do like the linesman making that call because it was that close. People argue, no, it wasn't even close. It was close. We watched 30 videos of slow motion and still – I wasn't 100% sure it was conclusive. Pretty sure it came out. But the one angle was not conclusive. That looked like it was way out. But overall, the officiating, again, hasn't been good all playoffs. I've really been, for the most part, unbiased because the Habs haven't been in it. Um, and it's just not been good. I haven't seen too many games where it's really cost teams games. But overall, it's just been horrible. It makes it tough to watch some of these hockey games. But I think that's where like this moves into point two. And one of my other observations is, man, Avalanche power, power play is nuts. And you could you could you could argue like okay well they're scoring goals like Gabe Landeskog on the doorstep like just off a rebound it doesn't matter their power play is just so so good and you're talking about how penalties haven't affected games yet like you can't this is where like if you keep this up it's gonna at some point somebody's gonna get it's gonna be a tie we haven't had a close game at all yet three games haven't had a close one game one was overtime game one was an overtime game yeah it was but it shouldn't have been. Like I didn't know. Like I don't. Yeah. Okay. You can say that's close, but that's, that's kind of the opposite of saying like game three was closer than it's like you said game three was closer than it seemed. I thought game one was not as close as it seemed like it to me. No, I agree. I agree with both those, but you know, like I just look at this power play, man. And I'm like, if you keep making poor penalty calls and you can see it goes both ways, but it's going to shake out better for Colorado and say, well, it's not their fault. Their power play is better. It's not, but if you're going to give equal amounts big, of penalties and guys are they're scoring at like 35, 40% on the power play, that's a huge advantage. Yeah, one-year penalty kill has to do better, but also slowing the game down overall, like when we're going to four on four, and you're seeing the penalties match out. Really, that's an advantage to Tampa. Tampa wants to slow the game down. They can't match Colorado's speed at all. We saw that. We've seen that in parts of every game. They cannot match the speed of Colorado. Victor Hedman, I have never seen Victor Hedman get exposed like he has. I think he's minus four or minus five through two games. He's getting exposed by the speed of Colorado. I mean, it doesn't help that their first line pairing includes Jan Ruda, who is, he shouldn't even be on it. Like, he's a third pairing defenseman. 
and he's playing first line minutes for you, that's an issue. But so that's where there is an advantage of all these penalties being to Tampa. It slows down the game a lot more. Colorado's a much faster team. This team is unbelievable. So that's huge. What I've seen, I've never seen Victor Hedman get exposed like this. And the other big takeaway I have so far this season or this series is this is the most I've got to watch Kale McCarr. And Kale McCarr is the second best player in the NHL, in my opinion now. Like, you watch what he can do offensively, defensively, the way he's taken over games one and two. Everything he is doing for this Colorado Avalanche team, he is the best player on that team. It's not Nathan McKinnon. And I think he might be the best defenseman that I've really seen. And what he does, I mean, he just won another Norris Trophy. We'll get to that in a bit. But uh, Kale McCarr is just ridiculous. He's looking like, I think, the second best player in the NHL. Yeah, I mean, he definitely has is is top for sure. I mean, we I mean, we'll we can argue that another day, but um, yeah, like I mean, he his talent is ridiculous. I mean, the guy, his movement, his skating, uh, his offensive prowess, his defensive responsibility, you know, all of the above, right? He's just fully well rounded, and it's such a huge, huge advantage, um, you know, for the Avalanche. And to kind of cap this off, you know, kind of moving into Game Four here. You know, if you're Tampa, it's a must-win tonight. Uh, you cannot go down three-one and go back to Colorado. The the atmosphere that the Colorado Avalanche f- fans have um, may be one of the well is is top two in the U.S. I would say probably behind Carolina. I think Carolina pro well the Rangers isn't bad, but Carolina fans are nuts. Like they're pretty good too. There's a lot of teams. Nashville and Vegas are up there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, but they're, they're up there for sure. Like, you know, obviously nobody's, nobody's like Arizona, but like even LA, like if you look at LA as, as an example, they had great crowds for when they're in the Stanley cup final or Anaheim when they're in the Stanley cup final, but just the consistency of the crowd to be able to have a song that everybody sings and has been singing for a long time. And that's not something that was just fake. I mean, it was pretty organic the way that it happened. It's hard to find. You're not going to find that Toronto. I'll tell you that for sure. So. No, they do it all regular season, and now it's just become more of a highlight in the playoffs here, and it's just unbelievable. Yeah, that crowd is unbelievable. It's insane every game, and again, again, this is a must-win for Tampa. You're never truly in trouble in the playoffs until you lose at home. Neither team's lost at home yet, so it's big. I mean, once you get to Game 7, all bets are off. So again, if you get your job done at home, you're not in trouble yet. So Tampa's are really not in trouble yet. I think they've looked like the way worse team, but you win tonight, you're going to Colorado up 2-2, that's the best of three. So you never know. Um, again, Colorado, I think, has been the much better team overall in this series. But Tampa's won back-to-back cups. They have the experience to get it done. They have the experience to find a way to get it done. And we've learned the last game especially that their advantage is still massively in net. Vasilevsky's arguably the best goalie in the world. And Darcy Kemper's good, but he's not great. And he can get exposed. So we saw that last game. We'll see if he can bounce back tonight. A couple interesting things. I mean, by the time people are listening to this, the game's probably over. Uh, Nazem Kadri sounds like he's going to go. Braden points not. Kucherov is going to go. And Kemper will get the start. So those are some interesting tidbits for game four here. Nazem Kadri could bring a big spark to this Colorado team that I don't think needs a big spark. <laughs> yeah, I think they'll do just fine without him, to be perfectly honest. But, um, yeah, going to be interesting. We'll see how that uh, shakes out, hopefully. I mean, by the time we record next week, more than likely – well, we might not have a Stanley Cup champ if it goes to seven, but if it ends in six, then we will. So we'll break that down uh, next week. NHL awards went last night. 
with uh, the Leafs being forefront with Austin Matthews winning the Hart and the 10 Lindsay Trophy. Uh, Austin Matthews' first Maple Leaf uh, in history to win the Ted Lindsay Award. Um, there's been a lot of opinions on it. And, you know, as I said, if you want, we talked about this earlier. We, we, we kind of had our midseason picks for the two, and we kind of had settled on, you know, it was likely that. Matthews and McDavid would probably split like one would win the heart and one would win the Ted Lindsay. That's what we had talked about as being a likelihood. And it is not what happened with Matthews taking both, um, you know, one voted by the sports writers, one voted by the players. Um, again, my take on the whole thing is, and, and like people can disagree and I don't have a problem with that. I think the one thing that we, have a disadvantage of especially if you're not a Toronto fan and you live in southern Ontario is that like you have a bias and hate on the Leafs for sure and that's fine like I I totally get that but I think it's just I think winning the Ted Lindsay to me just speaks about how the rest of the league you know the rest of the league appreciates what Matthews did this year that's what I'll look at if you wanted to say that the heart was you know whatever that they don't know what they're talking about I don't know but if the players were the ones that voted it voted for him to win I mean can you really can anybody really argue that that's my like that's my only comment there because I guess sports writers we could argue well they, they don't want it to be the same guy every year that's fine but the players didn't have to vote for him they could have voted for McDavid if they wanted to yeah, again, like I have a pretty decent opinion about this, and it's more in the past than it is biased. Of course, I'm going to be biased towards the Leafs. Um, but again, like this just kind of like I'm going off past. Stamkos did not win automatically when he scored 60 goals. He didn't win the Hart Trophy, he didn't win the Ted Lindsay. Uh, this year, I just think it's automatic now, and I think maybe going forward, it's automatic. If you score 60, you win it. And Stamkos scored 60 in a lower scoring season than Matthews did and didn't win the Hart Trophy. This year, it seemed like as soon as Matthews scored 60, he was getting the Hart and Ted Lindsay, and it just seemed like it was obvious. Where we've seen 60 goal years, uh, Stamkos is now the only person not to win the Hart, so maybe that's a discussion, more of a discussion than it is Matthews winning it at 60. Uh, but McDavid did a season that we hadn't seen before. He was more than a point and a half a game. Matthews, again, we've seen 60 a couple times in the last uh, 10 years or so. Um, so that's my argument there. Again, with the Raiders, I mean, we saw the all-star teams come out, the first and second all-star teams. It seems like there's a little Toronto biased with the all-star team. Again, if we're going to argue goals are worth more, which I'm fine to argue. So if we're going to argue that because of the 60 is that important for the heart and the Ted Lindsay, that's fine. If 60 goals, if a goal is worth three points or whatever you want to do, that's fine. And I can understand that argument. I'm okay with that. But then how come Mitch Marner makes the first all-star team over guys like Kaprasov and Kachuk who way outscored him in points and goals? That doesn't make sense to me. So there does seem to be, I think, with the writers a little biased. But as you said, the Ted Lindsay is not the writers. It's the players. So there's good proof there that Matthews was the best player this season. And I'm not going to argue that. I just think it doesn't match up with what the season's past. And going forward, and I think Stamkos deserves an apology. Oh. But uh, going forward, I think 60 maybe uh, just automatically gets you the heart in Ted Lindsay. And that's fine. If goals are worth that much, that's fine. Uh, it just hasn't been in the past. So... That's just my opinion. But again, if that's the way we want to go forward, I'm fine with that. But there seems to be a little miscommunication when it comes to the all-star teams then. Yeah, so I think I think that's bang on. And I think that's where, like, you know, you can argue whatever you want. Like, sports writers, I, I don't know the percentage, by the way. I'd love to see the percentage of – and they can all say they're unbiased, but that's not always the truth. Um, 
I mean, I'm sure I'm sure there is bias, 100%. I don't know what the percentage breakdown is. I'm not sure if there if there's enough to do that. Um, but as I said, I think that yeah, the Stamkos angle is 100% fair. But that goes back to as you said, that's a Stamkos discussion. That's not a Matthews discussion. Um, and maybe and Stamkos probably should have won it, right? Who did win it that year? Do you know? I have no idea actually. I will uh, try and bring that up as you finish your take. Yeah, try pull that up for me. Um, because I, I mean, it, depending on who won that, I mean, it could definitely affect it. But the reality is, is as I said, players to me is undisputable. And because we're so close to the sun, so to, so to speak, I think it's very easy for us to just be like, oh, yeah, of course the Leafs won. Yeah, well, when it's the players, man, they, they're the ones playing every game all the time. You know, guys have seen him play. And this kind of ties it with the Marner thing. I'm not 100% sure. I mean, it's sports writers are, are picking the... Like, I, I would be curious, like, if the players were to vote on the all-star team. Like, let's just say they had a vote in that, right? And they said, you know, okay, rank your top five wingers, rank your top five or whatever, your top two wingers. Is it, is it, does it matter? Like, do you need two defensemen, two wingers, and a center for the first all-star team or first team? It looks like they actually have it divided into right wing, left wing. So he would have only been competing against Kachuk and not Kaprasov. But same thing. Kachuk, in my opinion, had a better season than Martin. Right. I don't... So th- especially if we're talking the same criteria. So that would be interesting, I think, to me, right? So, like, putting the Matthews thing aside, I mean, to me, I thought he was the best player this year. I mean, McDavid is unbelievable, scores a lot of points, does his thing, uh, and that, which is amazing. If if McDavid won the heart, I would have no problem with that. If Matthews won, when Ma- Matthews won the heart, I don't have a problem with that either. I think you're, it could go either way. Uh, first team, I would be really interested to see what happens if the players voted for that. And I, and I just said, hey, like, who do you think is the top right winger in the league? Give them five, six, whatever choices. You want to rank them? I don't really care how you do it. And obviously not every player is going to do it. But if you pulled them and said, hey, who do you think the top winger is? You can't vote for yourself. Who's the top winger? Who's the top left winger in your opinion? Who's top center? Now it gets a little dicey. But if, if McDavid was first center, was he? No, he wasn't. Matthews was. Okay. But that, that to me could go either way. Matthews first center. Yeah. McDavid second center. That to me... From, a, from that perspective, I'm not saying that Matthews is better than McDavid because he's not. But, like, if you wanted to go either way on that, depending on the season, I'm fine with that. But I just think it would be interesting to see from a player's perspective how they would rank that. Because I agree with you I, to a certain extent. I mean, I think Matt Marner had one of his better years, no doubt. I think that he was good this year. He was better in the playoffs this year for sure. Not that it matters. Um, but you're right. Like, does like what is the classification for that, I guess? Like, I don't know the breakdowns. Yeah, that... Matthew Yeah, Matthew Kachuk had more than 40 goals. He had more than 100 points. And he led his team to the division champion. Like, they won their division. So, all three things that Marner didn't do. So, that's what – it just doesn't make sense to me. Going back, I do have the 2011-2012 stats up. So, Steven Samkos finished with 60 goals. Evgeny Melkin won the Hart Trophy with 144, 98% of the first votes. And he had 109 points, 12 points more. Oof. McDavid's way outscored Matthews than that. So that's where I'm just, I don't really, those two seasons just don't correlate in my opinion. And that's where it's a little confusing. And so that's just, again, like, again, if we want to say goals count, then I think maybe Stamkos has the more confusion and I'm fine with if goals make the difference, but uh, it just doesn't make a hundred percent sense doing all three of these things together. The Stamkos season, the Marner versus Kachuk thing. And now this Matthews versus McDavid because McDavid did something we hadn't seen ever this season he had over 120 points like we don't see that everything he did we've seen 60 goals matthews had an incredible season best season ever by a leaf 
and that's not even close, and that's a historic franchise. Um, I don't know. There's just a couple things that don't add up here, but I get it. Uh, Matthews had an incredible season. For sure can argue that he had the best season out of any player. Uh, I just don't think Marner, on the same criteria, Marner did not have the best season as a right winger then. Yep, I think that's fair. Um, I I mean, you're probably happy that Bunting didn't win the Calder then. Yeah, he finished third in voting, which was nice to see. <laughs> but it, it, it's the same argument we had last year. I didn't think Kaprasov should have been included in the rookie. Uh, same argument. Like, like I know Bunting, if he had was born two days later or had played one more game in two separate seasons, he wasn't a rookie. So, like, that's too close to being it. Like, he's not a rookie anymore. Bunting was a great piece for the Leafs and a really important piece in the regular season. Uh, but he wasn't a rookie anymore. Same with Kaprasov shouldn't have been because he played pro for so many years in the KHL. Uh, Moritz Sider, huge, though, for Detroit. Detroit had two of the top four vote-getters, Lucas Raymond, Moritz Sider. They got a good core coming together in Detroit now, so nice to see that. Both named to the all-rookie team, so that was good for them as well. Uh, little disrespect to Cole Caulfield. Is he actually finished like way up in points, way up in goals, especially the second half of the year, and he finished ninth in rookie scoring uh, around some guys I hadn't even heard of, really. So a uh, little disrespect to him. He wasn't going to win it, clearly, because his first half of the season was horrendous. But he still ended up with more than 20 goals and had a really good finish to the season. So thought he was going to finish fifth or sixth. So ninth is a little disrespect. Oh, yeah. No doubt about that. Um, actually, the more interesting one. So, I mean, obviously, the Vesna went to who we thought it was going to go to. That's fine. Um, don't really need to yeah, talk. Shesterkin wasn't close. No, and we don't really need to talk about it. The more interesting one was the Norris um, between Kale McCarr and, and Roman Yossi. And Yossi had more first place votes than McCarr did. But it's points based on first, second, third, fourth, fifth votes. And Makar had more total points, so he wins Norris. That's how it works. I mean, there's some people who... Super think, close. Man, really close. And there's, I mean, there's people who are like, man, you should win if you get the most first place votes. Nah, that's not how it works. I mean, that does not how we're, that, that's not how it works in any election in uh, Canada or the U.S. So I don't know why you think that that would happen in... Uh, <laughs> in uh in the nhl awards um i was fine with either of those guys to be honest i think the biggest difference to me was i don't know like did did kale get a little bit more like kale's very electric like he's an electric electric player did he get a little bit more love in the second third place votes for that than maybe yossi did i think the biggest thing here is kale's defensive metrics are actually better than yossi's Yossi beat him in points. Uh, Yossi was on pace for 100 most of the season, which I think if he got that 100 number, it was, yeah, it's in the bag. You win the Norris. But Kale's defensive metrics were better. So I think there's a lot of guys who, when you're looking at second, third place voting, even the first place, like you look at those metrics and you're like, oh, I really like Kale better. So there's probably a lot of different voters who would have Yossi as not a great defensive metrics guy who might have been like, yeah, he finished first in points, but Makar was better. Hedman was better. So he's kind of my third place guy. Uh, so it's kind of the first year where we've really seen that. It seems to always be like, if you finish way ahead in points and as a defenseman, it's you win the Norris, which I don't agree with because that doesn't make you the best defenseman. We, talk, Eric Carlson, we talked about the, that. Never close to the best defenseman in the NHL. He was the best offensive defenseman in the NHL by far for a few years there. Eric Carlson was by far the best offensive defenseman maybe we've seen in the last 10, 20 years. Uh, but he was never the best defenseman overall where Kale McCarr, in my opinion, is the best defenseman overall. He offensively, defensively, everything he does, he is the best defenseman in the NHL. And at the end of the day, I think that's what the voters came down to. It was super close. Yossi did one of the best offensive seasons we've seen. 
Uh, but Kiel McCarr was just so good. And overall, I think it could have gone either way. I'm fine with either, especially the more I watch McCarr in these playoffs. Everything he does offensively, defensively, on the penalty kill. We saw the one game he had a shorthanded and a power play goal. Uh, Kiel McCarr is the best defenseman in the NHL. And he won the award rightfully so. But if Yossi won it, I could argue the same thing. Well, that's we talked. You know, when we did our kind of midseason awards, we talked about how like it's kind of dumb. Like there's some, you know, there's some awards that are given out that were like, man, we really couldn't fit in like the offensive defenseman award or the defenseman with most points and actually have a defenseman of the year who you know play defense. Like that's where that would make sense. And and you could say, well, that you're you know you got to give out a centerman award and a right wing. I mean, fine, go ahead then. I don't care. Like if you want to say you were the best right winger this year, knock yourself out. Don't bother me at all. But that's where it's co- I mean, complicated. Yeah, you have that with the NHL first and second. Team, yeah, but so. you're not getting you're not get to go on no. stage with the fancy trophy and all that kind of stuff, right? But you know what I mean, though. Like, at least for the defenseman one, because being an offensive defenseman is great. Scoring lots of points as a defenseman, super impressive, great, awesome. But I mean, Norris is best defenseman. If you're not the best defenseman, then you probably shouldn't be winning. And was did if Makar had the best metrics from a defenseman standpoint, absolutely he should win. But I think that that would be fair because I think if you look at guys who are like unreal defenders who get 30 points a year, they have no prayer. They're never going to win. Well, that was the thing is like he wasn't first in defensive metrics, but if you even it out with the amount of points, he finished second in points and he was still way positive defensively, you're like, okay, Kale Makar is the best defenseman. Uh, Yossi was still positive defensive metrics. He's still a really good defenseman, and he finished first in points. But just overall, the variance, again, Kale McCarr, I think, had the better season. And, again, too many people, especially casual fans, I think, look too much at the numbers. A lot of people, I don't think, know how to judge a defenseman on defensive metrics or even watching them. I'd say your casual fan has absolutely no idea. Like, absolutely has no idea how good Shea Weber was in his prime. Has no idea how good Victor Hedman can be in his prime. Because it's hard to watch. It's not as easy to tell how good these guys are. You watch an Eric Carlson, you watch a Roman Yossi, those are easy to see. Even Kyle McCarr at times offensively, you're like, okay, that guy's impressive. But overall, as a full defenseman, you don't see it as easy. And Kyle McCarr is the best overall defenseman in the NHL, and rightfully he won this. Roman Yossi won it. I wouldn't be upset at all, though. Yeah, I wouldn't be upset either. I was good. Uh, as I said, I was good either way. So, all right, buddy. Good chat today. Glad to get back uh, back into it. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Over Six Sports at Zach Burke Over Six and at C Charlton Turf. And for the Over Six Sports podcast, I'm Zach the Bandit Burke, and with me, as always, the Turf King, Cameron Charlton. Thanks for listening, to Over Six Sports, and we will chat with you hopefully next week.